This is your daily real estate syndication show, and I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today is a highlight show that's packed with value from different guests around a specific topic. Don't forget to like and subscribe, but also go to lifebridgecapital.com where you can sign up to start investing in real estate today. I hope you enjoy the show. What is Agent Ignite? Get educated on current and forecasted market trends and valuable insight on real estate-related topics from accredited experts, giving you a competitive edge in the industry. Sign up for the next Agent Ignite session at theruthteam.com slash events. That's T-H-E-R-U-E-T-H team.com forward slash events. Our guest is Jeremy Roll. Thanks for being on the show, Jeremy. Oh, no problem, Winnie. Thanks again for having me. Really appreciate it. Right off the bat, I'd love to know your thoughts about investor portals versus, you know, no portal. I'm sure you've been in deals probably that have both, or I'd love to hear your experience, you know, about both and why you like one over the other or if it matters to you. Yeah, no, great question. And thanks again for having me on. I really appreciate it. You know, portals have become, in, so I've been investing for 17 years in syndications or passive investments. And I'd say portals have become more popular probably in the last one to two years. And actually, for those of you out there who are not familiar you may notice if you've invested in multiple deals that have portals that the portal looks the same over and over and over. And that's because a company called CrowdStreet, which a lot of you out there probably know is a popular syndication platform, actually has white labeled their own interface and sold it off to as a service to a lot of the syndicators. So that's by far the most popular one I see. It's honestly 90 plus percent of the portals that I log into are CrowdStreet white labeled portals. So it's kind of nice because you, you already know where everything is. It's a very similar layout across all the syndicators. And also, I could tell you firsthand, because I've seen some of the back office stuff they do, that they are really looking to improve it. And they seem to manage it very well. I know a lot of syndicators are very happy with that, that portal. And I, I have no affiliation with CrowdStreet at all. In fact, I'm an advisor for Realty Mogul. So if anything, I should be saying it's bad. But honestly, it really, really is actually good. I personally happen to like it. And... I can tell you right now, the syndicators love it because it makes it much more efficient for them. And I just find it's, it's nice to have everything in one place. Obviously, you can download individual documents. You can download multiple documents. Like I'll give you an example. This is a real-life example, actually. Yes, just yesterday, literally, randomly, I received a corrected K-1. And we're recording this in September of 2019. And that was kind of a bummer. And I got that from an operator. And they had posted it into the portal that was CrowdStreet that they were using. And what I really liked about it is that I didn't have to go hunting for where the K1, even though I have it in a pretty well-organized folder, I have to go to my folder. I was able to download the previous K1, the corrected K1 from like very quickly and open them up and compare them and understand what changed, what was corrected. And so how I had to go is a minor point, but let's say you're not well-organized. You're not specifically purposely being well-organized about this stuff. It's kind of self-organizing for the investor. So I tend to like it for that reason. And it's probably helpful for some of the investors out there. So that's my quick opinion. I would say that whether or not there's a portal, it doesn't change too much in that the reporting you know, requirements and what you would expect from a syndicator should stay the same. So it's just nice to have it in a unified place. Do you like you know, being able to like log in on your phone and see it that way? Or are you mostly going to look at it on the computer? I've seen some portals that have a really nice app. And I've thought, you know, that would probably be nice for some investors. Then I've seen others that, you know, they still have a really robust platform, but maybe they don't have an app other than going through the browser. And I just wondered if that's, if that's something that you use. Yeah, so I actually don't use, I don't even know if they have one or not. I don't use it. But, you know, this is true, unfortunate fact. 
I was using a very old BlackBerry until earlier this year. And just two, three months ago, I switched to Android, which is still a BlackBerry with a keyboard, but it's actually Android operating system. So even though I can use Android apps, I'm the wrong person to ask. So there you go. <laughs> no, fair enough. Fair enough. So I think you mentioned that like if they if an operator doesn't have a portal, like it's not you know, it doesn't mean you're not going to invest with them. I, we, we've talked about how you've, you're going to do your due diligence on the operators and the property and underwriting. We've, we've mentioned those things in other shows, but the portal is not going to sway you one way or the other. Portal won't sway me. Well, here's what I will say. Some of the older syndicators who are more old school, maybe been syndicating for a few generations or a few decades, I think they're less likely to necessarily have a portal. Now that we're talking about it, I'm thinking it through. Whereas a younger syndicator who is maybe prize of younger staff is more likely to have the portal. I, I've never looked at this statistically, but I do think there's probably some type of correlation. And so, you know, it, if anything, I like to invest with more experienced operators, like everything be apples to apples. So it's interesting to consider that. And now I'm thinking about it too. Like I do have a number of logins, but I'm not in a tremendous number of operators who have portals, probably because a lot of them are older, more experienced operators. I wouldn't tell anybody out there to judge whether they should invest with someone or a syndicator based on whether they have a portal or not, honestly. If anything, if it's an older syndicator that actually does have a use of a portal, it may tell you reading between the lines that they are more forward thinking and tend to be more tech savvy. But that's about the beginning and end of it, I think. So it definitely would not sway me either way. So moving on a little bit, but going back to really specifically dealing with more deal sponsors, Jeremy, you know, do you expect, you know, let's say you've had an, a relationship with an operator for a while. Do you expect the first right to be able to invest in, a, in an opportunity or, you know, or, or as opposed to it just being just mass distributed, you know, and then there being a waiting list? Yeah, that is a great question. Look, this is clearly a subjective topic. I will tell you that I've seen this handled three different ways, actually, in, in my experience. One is that... You're on a distribution list, no matter how many investors that operator has, and it's a first-come, first-served basis and blocking a spot. Okay. Number two is that there are tiers of investors. So tier one is maybe who's invested within the longest or the most number of times or some method that they determine that you're in the A tier, right? You get it first, you get the first shot, and then the B tier gets it after. Okay. The third way I've seen it is that a syndicator has so many investors that you can only look at every second or third deal. In other words, they have investor list A, B, C, and there's so many investors that each deal is going to fill out from each own list. And so they rotate, literally, just random. You get today's deal, they get tomorrow's deal, Person, the next person gets next week's deal, then it comes back to you a month later, right? So I've been a part of all of those. And I'm, look, I'm kind of a principled guy. So the, con- the concept of fairness is what comes to mind to me. And to me, I think the, fairness, the most fair way to do it is just send it to everybody. There's actually issues with that too, because depending on which time zone you're in, you know, you may be more likely to be looking at your email at 9 a.m. Pacific when someone else at noon Eastern is actually at lunch, right? So it, it's hard to solve this perfectly. I prefer to be in a situation where I'm getting every deal from the person. And I say that because I've been on the other side of the table. I've gotten every third deal from an operator I love who I've invested with more than 10 times already. And I still cannot get. And so like what I do to try to get around it is I try to be in touch with them as often as possible, ask them what's coming up and just try to sneak into whatever else they're doing. Uh, but I have to work at that to actually get those deals. So for me, I strongly prefer to be on the... the and one thing I actually really don't like is I was once a part of a, a very experienced senior living operator, and I was in their tier C. Okay? And I knew this because I'd asked them. And so they would go to tier A, then they go to tier B, and literally like tier C would never get anything. And it was because they had been operating for 10, 15 years by the time I met them, and I was just in tier C. 
And it was really frustrating. You know, they were still doing their deals, but it was just frustrating for me. What's also interesting from a syndicator perspective is that you never know when an investor is going to stop investing because they're out of capital. They've decided to invest in other things. So from a diversification perspective, I think it's lowest risk for the op- for those operators to actually send it out to everybody at the same time for long term, you know, continued interest in their deals. But there's a lot of ways you can slice and dice this, that's for sure. So, you know, when someone's presenting a new deal, I'd like to know your thoughts about, you know, like a webinar to present the deal versus a call, you know, say from a syndicator, you know, and what you like to see there. Yeah. So again, this is very subjective. So just one person's opinion. I am really all about weeding through the deal and looking at the details in writing because from a convenience standpoint, I'm so busy. I like to be able to do it at 10 p.m., whatever time I want to do it. And you can argue that if you watch a webinar, you can do the same. But the challenge I have with the webinar is that I can weed through a document and within five minutes, pick up enough of the important points to know if this is something I should really spend a lot of time on. Well, with the webinar... I don't know how long it's going to take before I've gotten those key items out of it. It could be to the end. It could be a half an hour or an hour. So the webinar is not nearly as efficient from my perspective. What's the benefit of the webinar? Well, I think the main benefit of the webinar is that the syndicator gets to actually give their full message out without having to speak to 50 different people on 50 different calls. It's very efficient for them. Some people may like a webinar. Maybe they're driving home and they're listening to it on their car and it's a good use of their time. But for me, who I just try to be really, really efficient and I have the time to do this, I strongly prefer to be able to jump into the docs. And what I'll do is I'll start picking things out in the documents and the pro forma and create a very long list of questions from that. But if you're asking me to spend an hour listening to a webinar without knowing if a quarter of those questions are even going to be answered, just not a good use of my time. So I'm probably being a little harsh because there's probably a lot of pros to the webinar that I maybe I'm not giving enough credence to. But I strongly prefer just getting the docs and being able to talk to the syndicator directly. No, fair enough. And and what about, you know, phone calls from the investor or follow-ups? We'll say we've sent that email out. You know, do you want a call from the operator or numerous calls? What does that look like? Yeah, I actually would strongly prefer for them not to be like pursuing me. And again, I'm really biased. I am a very no-sales pitch guy. You know, if anybody out there researches me, you'll see I co-founded a nonprofit in 2007, which you mentioned for investors, by investors. We, we started these investor meetings, public meetings, strictly for no sales pitch. That was the whole point, just to break even, no sales pitch, because of all the sales pitches I've sat through all, all the years of networking. So I don't like the concept of getting multiple emails. You know, I'll take it, I'll review it, and then I usually will respond and be respectful and let them know I'm passing or not, just so they're aware. But I don't like it at all if someone's trying to hit me up three, four, or five times. It almost gives me the wrong message and investor that they're a little bit desperate. It may not be that that's the case. But I am personally really turned off by a lot of marketing like that. Do you provide any feedback to to people like that or to operators when you receive information? Yes, almost always. I actually tell them why I'm passing. And it's not... The last thing I want to do is is say like, you know, here's why I'm passing. Your deal isn't good. That's not all what it is because there's a thousand ways to invest and it just might not be the right fit for me, right? And it doesn't make it a bad deal or a wrong deal. But I like to give the feedback because what I don't want them to do is get the impression the ones that I really like and want to work with down the line, that it's that I have no interest, right? Or that I'm just brushing off their deal. And so if I'm responding to a syndicator and telling them why I'm not investing, and most likely these days, it's because I don't necessarily agree with market prices on average, right? And I want them to know that I'll say like, I would say, look, you know, I I can't do this cash flow level, it's not hitting my minimum, or I don't really, this cap rate's too low for me, the multiple's too high. But I really look forward to looking at stuff, you know, once we have a market adjustment and I'm going to take it seriously or something like that. Because, I, again, I don't want them to think that I'm just not reading stuff and all that if I'm trying to build a relationship with them in the future. 
part of my thought process is this whole tier A, tier, tier B, tier C thing. I don't want to end up in tier C if I can avoid it. If it's someone I really like and I want to invest with long term. So you got to do a little bit of work on that. You know, you're, you're not the only investor looking at a deal. You're, you're thinking long term there. Maybe I should get yeah. into this deal so I can get into the next deal. A hundred percent. Yes. Long term yeah. for sure. I like that. So, you know, I was thinking about just the process of how, you know, as an operator, we have to take sensitive information or, you know, bank account information and routing numbers and things like that. And so, you know, what are your thoughts about how that's transferred, how we take that? You know, do you have questions of, is this secure? You know, what are you doing with this as I'm telling it to you over the phone or, you know, through the portal, you know, or maybe they don't have a portal like you mentioned. How do you like to see that handled? Yeah, great question. So I actually was indirectly involved in an incident recently where there was a hacker that hacked into somebody's email of the CEO and the CFO of... It was actually a startup I was investing in, which is very rare for me, but nonetheless. And if it wasn't for the fact that my friend who I had brought in who was investing as well, hadn't asked for the documents a little early, we all would probably would have lost a combined million dollars to this person who had set up literally a real company in another state with a very similar name, and they were intercepting the emails that, that were actually being sent from the syndicator, changing the, the, the wiring information in the email, but leaving all the rest of it the same. So it seemed like an email that was written by the person, because actually was written by the person. And then, you know, they created a very similar LLC name in another state. And it wasn't for my friend that asked me, does this state look right? And I'd already invested in the company in the past in a different state. And I was like, that's a weird state for them. It wasn't Delaware. It wasn't California. We actually figured out that it was being hacked. We were 24 hours away from all the investors getting this information. Just a very lucky situation. I was actually floored because if you can believe this, the hacker actually called my friend because he'd been seeing the emails back from a signature. To, this is the, he used the person's name. This is so-and-so like, are you sending the wire? We're waiting for it. He actually was impersonating the person that was supposed to receive it and actually called him four times one day to try to get the wire. Clearly desperate to get the person's money for whatever reason. And it was really interesting. He literally called the, the hacker. I called my friend for this. So after seeing all this, I just realized how important it is because I heard these stories once you're kind of watching it happen, the different situations. So I will be probably by phone calling myself and not receiving a call, but calling people going forward. And unless it's just someone I already invested with before, and I've already used that exact information before with my wiring and everything. So yeah, I think it's becoming a much more important topic. And I unfortunately think this is going to become a more common occurrence going forward. That, that's a great idea right there. I'm, I'm glad you said that. So you know, having the investor call you so they, they know who they're calling. Now, I know that some people like using their portals. And that theoretically, like an investor should be able to log into a portal and look at information that may have been like in a document that may have been uploaded there. And some people are using that as a safety guard. And I think that's not bad. But you can argue that technically that can be hacked and that someone else can be, you know, it, just like the email was hacked. So if you want to be 100% sure as an investor, it's a lot of money at stake, then I would strongly recommend calling. Also, and I don't want to get this wrong, but I believe a wire is like giving a cashier's check. It's cash. So once you send it, I believe you cannot get it back. Hopefully, I'm not giving wrong information out. An ACH usually you can catch it and reverse it or sometimes depending on the bank within one, two, three days sometimes. So wire is like cash and ACH is more in process and can sometimes be reversed. So if you have the ability to choose, I would choose to send an ACH instead of a wire if you have that choice. You should definitely check with your bank on whether that's correct information I just gave to you. I don't want to like get it wrong, but there is a difference actually in being able to reverse the transactions between the two. 
That's a good question we should get some answers to as well. Uh, it's just understanding the ACH versus the wire. I know, I know, you know, we've wired funds uh, for adoption stuff and different things. And it's like, yeah, and I've asked that question. And they're like, I think this was on a Friday. And they said, yeah, I mean, by Monday, it would be like, you, you can't reverse it. You know, it's yeah. done. Yeah. So, yeah, just check with your bank to be sure before you go through the process. So is is there a specific method that you've seen that that you liked uh, an operator or the way they handled that in the past? I wouldn't say so because this is a pretty new phenomenon to be honest with you. I don't think enough operators are worried about this yet because I don't think there's been enough stories about it yet, you know. Uh, that's my impression. So I do know that the ones who are worried about it typically like having people call and verify and I think that's the safest way so long as you know you've got the person's correct phone number you're not calling somebody else. Our guest is Lance Peterson. Thanks for being on the show, Lance. Oh, thank you, Whitney. Happy to be on. Can you just speak to them a little bit if they don't have someone like yourself on their team or they're just, you know, maybe they already have a sponsor in mind, but they're trying to figure that out. Any steps that they could go through or questions they should ask? And, you know, I know we talk about questions I sponsor often, but I just feel like your level of experience, maybe there's a few things you could provide to that passive investor that's listening that they need to think through before they make that investment with the sponsor. Let's say that, you know, I did have access to the Verivest stuff and I didn't feel comfortable with the background check or whatever. I think that my go-to would be to get references. Like who else have, what are the other investors that have worked with these people before and have those conversations? What I found when I've called investor references, it ends up, they're not as great or wonderful as one would expect oftentimes because, you know, and investors, I think it's, it's interesting because... When it comes to investments, nobody wants to be the guy that said, oh, this is great. And then have it, whether or not they even know who that person was or not, like they don't want to be the one that said, oh yeah, Whitney's awesome. You should invest with those guys. If he himself is uncertain or doesn't have proof because he's want to be the guy who then if it blows up, he'd feel guilty. Right. And so I think that a lot of people skip that step because they think that, you know, anytime you get a reference that it's just going to be glowing. And I have not found that to be the case at all. So one thing I'd say to the sponsors, and I tell them this all the time, is that if you've got someone on your investor reference list, you better darn well make sure that those people are going to say wonderful things about you, right? Like, don't just say, well, yeah, call Jim. You know, I'm confident Jim thinks I walk on water. It's like, Jim probably doesn't think you walk on water. But that would be the big, and then just back channeling stuff. So, I mean, I'd probably, I'd call their property managers. I'd just try to figure out who these people are. I mean, that's at the heart of it, right? It's just... Who are they and are they capable to execute the business plan? You know, can they execute this strategy? Have they done it before? And of course, that's why I think track record's huge. To the degree that you have one, then that sort of is indicative of performance. It's, it's, it's funny to me that we don't make a bigger deal about it because it sort of demonstrates, and I get it, we've been on a bull run and everyone looked like they knew what they're doing, but it does sort of point to what might happen in the future. I mean, at least with other things going on. So, and then the reporting thing, obviously a big deal too, is just figuring out how often do you report, which those investors could probably give you insight into. Yeah, you talked about calling the property management company. I think it's interesting. I think I've, you know, I've had, I don't know, you know, hundreds and maybe thousands of investor calls over the last, you know, numerous years. And I think I've had one person recently asked to speak to our management company at a potential investor. And I thought it was an interesting thing, you know, because then the, it was like that way they could verify that those properties that we show on our website or whatever are actually under management, you know, and ask some other questions. So I thought that was a neat question that I haven't hadn't received before, but they had a call with them and it was fine. But still, it's just a way, you know, you're getting to know someone right off the bat, brand new, just to ensure, hey, this is 
this is real. You know, they are actually managing, or at least another call there, another contact outside of that initial sponsor's organization, potentially. But what about, you mentioned reporting. Could you just highlight a few things about reporting that you like to see from a sponsor? Well, I mean, at this point, it seems that people are really struggling just with frequency and consistency. So I think that just demonstrating that you're at least sending out some sort of narrative report on a quarterly basis, at least, just seems like the bar that you have to be able to cross, right? So I, as an investor, if, if I'm not seeing evidence that you've been doing that, I mean, I should be able to say to you, Whitney, okay, what deal have you done and it's been on your portfolio for two or three years? And you say, this property. Then I say, okay, send me the investor communication you sent to all the investors in that deal. And I should have it in my inbox, as far as I'm concerned, in, in under 20 minutes. Because if it exists, then you should be able to send it over easily, right? And so I think that that's sort of how I would go about it. I mean, what do I really want? I, as an investor, would love to get a capital account statement quarterly. I'd like to know, I mean, I already know how much you gave me in the distribution. So thanks for telling me that you sent me this money. What I'd really like to know is how much income is this property is being allocated to me? You know, how much depreciation would be helpful inside of the year, not after the year's over? And then obviously just the property level financials I mean, some people don't even provide those. But I mean, I, as an investor, it's kind of important. I'd like to be able to take a look at those things. So those are the things that I look for. And I feel like that's not asking too much. But but I've learned otherwise that I guess that is a tall order, unfortunately. You know, it's interesting. It's all about who you speak to and what operators. I think there's some people who are sophisticated or experienced as you are that are going to ask for those things and know what they're looking at, where many investors, it almost scares them to see, you know, financials like that. They just don't know where to start. But it's great to have somebody like yourself on our team, you know, that can help them or understand those a little better. You know, I wanted to speak to the frequency or you talked about getting those updates to you quickly. I've not seen anyone else do this. Maybe you have. I know we probably a year ago, we started putting all those investor updates on a landing page. And now, I mean, immediately I can send investors links to almost all of our projects where they can see every investor update that we've ever sent. You know, so they can, I mean, they can go back as far as they want, you know, so easily. So it's neat that you bring that up as well. So we just have a couple minutes left, but I wanted to speak to this, you know, investors or sponsors that are wanting to work, you know, with institutional money, right? Or they're wanting to, you know, work at that level of investors, or maybe they're not wanting to, you know, continue to have to have every investor at 50,000. But what does that look like typically for you? And, you know, maybe some steps for them to become ready for institutional money. Yeah, I think it's it's a lot of what we just talked about is that institutional investors, their expectation just to survive their due diligence process is that these things will be in some sort of data room that they can look at, right? So if you want to go that route, then you're going to have to have, you have to be very organized. And now I think that the downside is that institutional capital really equals expensive capital. So I just have so many sponsors think that that's like, that's like graduating to something like, I mean, and it is in a way, it means that you're mature enough and organized enough to be able to, you know, to attract it and that your track record is extensive enough to where they're willing to, you know, do business with you. But right, like it's not as wonderful as many people think it is. They cram you down and it's kind of like owning a job. So, you know, and obviously it's not just, it's not completely binary, right? But you need to understand that it's not all that, you hope it is because everyone wants this programmatic capital where it's just instant on capital well, that equals, you know, he who has the gold still makes the rules. And that means that don't expect that you're going to, you know, the fees that you've been charging, you probably won't charge. There's always trade-offs. 
right? And I think that that's the big thing. And I just think there's not one size fits all is the other side of it. It, it just, the capitalized transactions is complicated and each deal stands on its own. And, you know, but you need to be ready for it all because if you do find a deal that needs 20 million in equity and your investor base can't bring all that, then you need to find ways that maybe you can take on, you know, money from you know, equity from a private equity, you know, fund or something, real estate fund. And it just, if you're not buttoned up and you're not organized, then you won't be able to do that deal. Right. Yeah. Definitely need some options in this business or where to find money. Hopefully your investor base as an operator is continually growing. And I was just sharing with someone or another show, he's talking about referrals and it's incredible to watch that happen. It's our best source of new investors right now, just people sending people our way. So it's just neat to see that happen. But thanks for sharing just some pros and cons really of, you know, going that direction, right? For institutional money. And so, yeah, some things may have to change if you're planning to use or go that direction to use that type of funds. Lance, amazing show, just great, you know, understanding the friction between LPs, GPs, how to minimize that and how, how you have done that and how you're helping others. And also just thinking through institutional money and, you know, do operators really want to go that route or not, pros, cons, and maybe we should have some avenues like that if we need it, if it's a big raise uh, potentially, but just thankful for your time and sharing your level of expertise. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the Real Estate Syndication Show. Please subscribe and like the show. Share it with your friends so we can help them as well. Don't forget, go to lifebridgecapital.com where you can sign up and start investing in real estate today. Have a blessed day. 